Coming to you from the Gardner-Webb University Podcast Studios, welcome to Web Chat Episode 14. I'm Nolte Manning II. Today, Richard McDevitt and I are really happy to have with us Annette Sanuk-Clapsaddle. She's an award-winning author being recognized by the likes of NPR, the Thomas Wolfe Memorial Literary Awards, and also she was a finalist for the Weatherford Award. Our guest will speak with us today about her love of writing, her inspirations, and the impact of the Cherokee heritage on her life. You've had experience as the executive director of the Cherokee Preservation Foundation, a board member for the Museum of the Cherokee Indian, a teacher, an editor, and of course, wife and a mother. How do all of these roles influence your writing? Well, I think number one, all of these roles uh, make finding time to write very difficult. <laughs> I can certainly uh, see that. No, but I do, I, I um, am very particular about where I spend my time um, and try to find ways that serve each other. Um, so everything that I've learned through these positions um, or through this service in some way inform my writing um, in terms of what topics I'm talking about or um, really thinking through, like even if I think about like character development, right? Mm-hmm. What motivates characters? Um, part of that experience comes from teaching high school students, you know, for a right. dozen years, right. um, or understanding our our deeply historical culture and mm-hmm. um, how we have um, you know changed throughout history based on our cultural values. So um, every every way I spend my time is very intentional. I can see the that breadth of background would lead to a. A, a wide variety of applications, as you as you decided. <laughs> yeah. so. you, you talk about teaching and uh, talk about teaching high school, but you've been able to spend some time here at Gardner Webb, uh, and you're going to be spending time throughout the day with uh, Gardner Webb students. Mm-hmm. Uh, share with us a little bit about what are the things you're sharing with with these college students who are interested in creative writing, interested in putting their thoughts to paper, and and seeing those come to life. Sure. Yeah. I've asked the last class, for example, um, you know, what are you struggling with? Because I can talk from, you know, my experience um, writing this novel or or the other writing that I've done. Um, But it doesn't matter what level of writer you are. You all struggle with similar things. And so what I, you know, what I tell them is that, my advice is not the only advice, um, and to be in these conversations, um, just to be in the conversation is part of the work itself. So, um, you know, everything from little tricks um, yeah. to get through some difficult spots um, to different ways of, of thinking about specifically how to hold a whole novel in your in your head at once. Yeah. Um, it, it's it is terrifying at times, right? <laughs> so I, I like to just be really honest with them um, because it, it's, for me, it's useless to talk to someone who is an expert and and talks to you as if they are an expert. Right. Um, I, I like to know where people stumble and how they overcame that. So I hope to bring that as well. What's the greatest trick or tip that you were shared um, from someone else? Sure. So um the writer named uh, Robert Guype, he's from Kentucky, um, he, in terms of writing a novel especially, he says that you have to work with it every day, um, which is incredibly important because if you don't touch that work every day, then you will lose where you are in the novel. You'll lose um, 
kind of the the mood or the tone that you're working in, and then you have to go back and reread. And when you're you know talk about 300 pages in, yeah. you spend a lot of time rereading if you're not careful. So that's I think that's the best advice I've gotten. Yeah. Well, I, I, advice like that is priceless. I'm a big Anne Lamott fan. Oh yes. And yes. I I love the story she tells about her. Uh, I think it was her younger brother struggling with a, a writing assignment or mm-hmm. had had a writing assignment and had gotten behind and he had, it had paralyzed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a it was an assignment about, he had to write about different birds, mm-hmm. right? And so her uh, father uh, gave gave him this advice and Anne now calls it the best writing advice mm-hmm. ever, which was bird by bird. Mm-hmm. Just do it bird by bird. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, one at a time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of novels, your first novel, uh, gotten a lot of love and attention, recognized as a must read. Talk to us about that a little bit, the the journey of that, Even As We Breathe. Tell us what it's about. Give us a little background on that story. Sure. So Even As We Breathe uh, is set the summer of 1942, um, partly at the Grove Park Inn in Asheville, which is, as you may know, an upper-class resort. I can't afford to stay there. Uh, very often, um, but it's it's partly set there and partly set in Cherokee. Um, the summer of 1942, the Grove Park held Axis diplomats and foreign nationals as prisoners of war. That part is true. So that was the backdrop for the novel to bring uh, County Sequoia, who's a 19-year-old young man from Cherokee, bring him there to work as a member of the grounds crew, and uh, he's joined by Essie Stamper, an- another young woman from Cherokee. Um, And County is accused of being involved in the disappearance of a diplomat's daughter, and so he has to prove his innocence. Um, He also has a family mystery going on back home that he has to unravel and and work out this relationship with Essie. Um, And that's all I'll say about that relationship, so I don't give any spoilers, but... Um, so that's the backdrop of the novel, um, and the way it kind of came into the world, I was fortunate enough um, that I attend the Appalachian Writers Workshop in Hindman, Kentucky, for several years now, and um, one summer that I was there, uh, the University of Kentucky Press was in conversation with Hindman Settlement School Um, to start an imprint for fiction. And none of us at the workshop knew that, because you don't tell a bunch of writers there's going to be another publishing (laughs) opportunity. (laughs) Um, But the kind of the liaison, Rebecca Gale Howell, who was going to be the editor of that imprint, was at the workshop and kind of scouting. And um, she'd heard about my manuscript um, and had a conversation that day, asked me to send it to her. So I, I, you know, it's not a traditional way of getting published, but I don't think any way is anymore. Um, and, or typical, I guess, I, no way is typical. Um, and so I, you know, I was having conversations with a potential agent from New York and deciding, do I want to go, you know, try for a bigger publisher, but when that opportunity um, with Kentucky came through, I knew it would be in good hands. I knew the people uh, who would be working with it, and I'm glad I, I went that route because the book came out in 2020 amidst a pandemic, yeah. <laughs> which um, could, I mean, it was it was terrible for a lot of writers, but I think it was worse for writers who were with bigger publishers. Mm because they just got dropped or, or pushed aside. And the uh, smaller publishers, the university presses, were able to adapt um, to be more nimble in that process. And 
for example, I was able to, to, now that everybody was going to Zoom, I was able to be in bookstores across the country through Zoom that I never would have been able to travel to. Wow. Um, and so that platform opened up new opportunities for me um, to get broader attention. So, yeah, so it was in some ways really great timing um, for me. I hate to say anything about COVID right. was great, but yeah. It certainly was a different point in time for any number of jobs or careers mm-hmm. or you know people just trying to move through their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, R- Richard had, had noted that uh, this, this book, Even As We Breathe, uh, has received a lot of love, um, a lot of attention. Wh- what do you think it is about this story that has resonated? Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a few things. Um, number one, it's, it's the first published novel by a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. So literally our story's never been told <laughs> before, like even a fictional story to um, a, a larger audience in this way. Um, and I think people are hungry for different stories. Um, you know, I think sometimes... Um, the business side of things doesn't believe that, but I think it's true that readers want um, different stories and different characters. Um, I also think that there's a spotlight on Appalachian literature in general today. I mean, look at Barbara Kingsolver, for example. Um, so I think that you know a couple of those those things um, are, are really reasons. And I I have to say I've had tremendous support from other writers, um, and that. You know, you just you can't um, fully comprehend what what that will do when when another writer um, supports you in your work and and puts your name out there as well. So um, I've been fortunate in that way. Yeah. Well, the, uh, d- another dovetail on that that we were thinking about is, um, you know, my Noel can talk about his his family side because he's North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I am too. My family's from Madison County. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a lot of McDevitts near Walnut and places like that, yep. not too far from Cherokee. Um, and, but I'm keenly aware of what the rest of the state is these days. There are lots of newcomers, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you look at the you know faster-growing parts of the state. There are many, many people there that are not from North Carolina at all, so they don't know our state's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you think that makes telling this story and bringing some light to that history uh, even more important? And does it make it a little more uh, attractive to people maybe for that reason? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's a really good point. Um, our, it, it's kind of weird to think that, that for example, Cherokees have been here for tens of thousands of years or since the beginning of time, um, and people still don't know that much <laughs> about <laughs> us. Um, and, and to some extent... Um, you know, you have to be protective of, of what you share as well. But um, I, I think that for people to understand specifically the state of North Carolina, I don't know how you can talk about North Carolina or talk about the South without talking about the indigenous population that, that has always been here, that um, has taken care of this land um, for so long. I, I don't know how you have a conversation without it. Um, and so I think it's important to reach a broader audience um, with those stories, and um, and I think I think the opportunities to tell those stories are are continuing to grow as well. As you think about your your family history, your heritage, um, the location in which you were brought up, what are the things uh, that you have written about that you feel reflect that heritage, that family? Mm-hmm 
the most. And, and you've done uh, a lot of writing throughout mm-hmm. the years, mm-hmm. a lot of articles. Uh, we, we mentioned your first novel, but you've, you've been writing for quite a while. Sure, yeah. I think um, a lot of my creative nonfiction, especially lately, is reflective of that. Um, because I don't, you know, I think sometimes people expect Cherokee writers or other indigenous writers just to talk about our customs that are different. But for me, it's a worldview that's different. Um, and in particular, talking about the land. So um, I do a lot of writing, especially recently, um, about um, how I view the natural space that I'm in, um, maybe a little bit different than, than other people because of my cult- culture's worldview. So, for example, um, I am a mountain biker, so I spend a lot of time in the woods on a bike, and that has changed the way that I write. Um, but it also has connected me, I think, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's connected me to my culture. And so I love pairing, noticing something when I'm in the woods, and then talking to someone who is more of a cultural expert than I am um, about it and connecting those two things. Like, um, you know, now I notice what plant will fix some problem, right? Like yeah. I'll notice a plant and I'll show it to someone who, who is Cherokee and has that knowledge. Uh, and they'll say, oh, yeah, and then you can use it for this and this. It's yeah. a beautiful plant, but you can use it for this and this. So those things I love I love to write about, I love to think about and talk about. Um, North Carolina, it's, it's 2023 is North Carolina year of the trail. Uh, and I have made a goal to be on the trail every day in 2023. I think it is day 276. Wow, to be uh, exact. To be exact. <laughs> and I have done it so far. And wow. that, that. Good for you. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, it's been fun. Um, so I've been writing about that a lot too. Um, and I think it's just like part of who I am as a Cherokee person or an Appalachian person, um, just to be connected to the outdoors. Um, I, th- I think it's part of who I am. So how do you choose your trails when you're traveling? Because <laughs> actually, we've got some great trails at the Broad I River Greenway. Heard, I heard. Well, so a few things happened. When I first started this, it was on me uh, to, to find the trails. Now, I, do, I know the trails around home, but when I travel... It forced me to research a little bit more, which is great. And Get I have the all trails app. Yes, I have all trails. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. pretty essential. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'll do that. Um, but now, um, when I travel, a lot of times people already know about this goal, so they've already set it up, or oh, they'll wow. tell me, and that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I've had people say, will you come speak here? And by the way, we have these mountain biking trails. I'm like, well, that <laughs> solidifies that. I'll be there. But I, sometimes I just, um, I, it also forces me out of my comfort zone because I do have to take some risks sometimes when I'm in places I'm not familiar well, with. New trails. Of yeah. course, you don't, don't really quite know exactly what's there. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so it just, and, but those are the best experiences too yeah. when I take a little bit of a risk. Well, yeah. What was the decision that, that made you say, I want to do this every single day? Um, I think, well, I like goals. I'm weird like that. I like, (laughs) and I had been doing some, um, downhill mountain bike racing. And so my goals were related to that. And then, um, I was like, I just was traveling too much that I couldn't keep up with, with, um, the, the intensity that I needed to for that. So I knew I wanted to be on trails. Um, and I needed, um, because I was traveling, 
I needed something that would get me out of a hotel room or get me out of the car. Um, and, you know, that I just heard about the year of the trail. I thought, well, let's see if I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a, we have a trail near our house. So I knew that if all else fails, I can walk to a trail from my house. And that's only really happened once that I had to do, like I was in desperate (laughs) situation. (laughs) I was in bed at nine o'clock and had not done a trail and I had forgotten. And I just like sat up in bed and I I looked at my husband. I said, I didn't do my trail today. He just started putting on his shoes because he was (laughs) And reaching for a headlamp. Yes, (laughs) yes. That's great. That's funny. You you said something that I think is really interesting about your point of view uh, related to your childhood and your your, uh, upbringing, that it's a point of view rather than a set of historical data points, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a really fascinating thing because I think sometimes we can get hung up in data points right. and, and in factual history. And then, of course, there's endless debate around factual history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But a point of view is a much more uh, personal and sort of uh, flexible kind of way to approach the world. And I think mm-hmm. it's fascinating that you called it out that way because that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that perspective, and I think there is a uniqueness to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you think that's always come through in your writing, even when you were doing articles before you, mm-hmm. you know, just embraced like long form or novels? It, it was already apparent. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I believe that that my writing has, to some extent, always been rooted in place, and that place is so culturally rich that mm-hmm. that worldview has to influence it. I'm just kind of going through in my, my brain trying to think about what I've written. Um, and everything that I have... Well, I often tell a story that the first time I thought I was writing a novel, I'm pretty sure I was in middle school, and <laughs> I was writing a, a novel about a young girl who lived in a lighthouse in Maine. And I, you know, I think I got halfway up the spiral staircase and realized I've never even been to Maine or in a lighthouse, so I probably shouldn't write this, right? That was like an, I didn't maybe realize it at that point, but that really was a lesson in um, understanding uh, the place that you're writing about, and because I think place informs worldview. Um, And that's why, you know, as you were saying that, it, it made me realize I often... Well, as I travel around, I'll often have people come up to me and tell me that they've got some family history of being Cherokee, as if they want to identify, you know, with me or with being a Cherokee person because they have a family story about it. And that's a real problematic thing to deal with um, because, I, one, oftentimes those stories are actually not accurate. Um, but, two, it's like how do you respond to that? And I think that... The, the way you phrased that made me realize that it's because they think being Cherokee is just a DNA thing, um, if they even have that, right? Yeah. And it's not. It's a worldview. It's um, an experience within that culture and with those people to live um, as a Cherokee person. So um, I appreciate you phrasing it that way because that, that helps me think through that a little bit better. Well, the way you articulated it, I thought was just really refreshing. And, you know, we do live in a world where we're just drowning in data, mm-hmm. right? You can get more than you could possibly process. Mm-hmm. And I think there is is some conversation about you can have a lot of data and, um, and still not get 
you know the the point of something. Right. right? There's mm-hmm. more to it than than a mountain of of data points, mm-hmm. and I think that is a very uh, organic and human sort of feeling thing mm-hmm. uh, that I liked the way you said that, and I think it actually describes it really well. Mm-hmm. So, so what do people ask you about your writing when they you say they come up and they have these interactions mm-hmm. with you? What do people ask you about your writing? Oh, I, you know, I've, I, they ask the gamut of things. Um, I, I, I mean, sometimes I get historical questions because it's a historical novel, mm-hmm. and I kind of laugh. Spe- speaking of data. Um, my husband's a historian and, um, and so I never really thought I was writing a historical fiction novel and was really nervous about that because I don't math, which means I don't do anything that has to do with numbers. But when you're (laughs) writing historical fiction, especially set in World War II, you better get it right or, uh, the historians will come out of the walls at you (laughs) and my husband will, um, so sometimes I get um, historical questions, and I just up front, I can answer the questions related to the book or within the time frame and place of the book, but I'm not going to pretend I am a World War II scholar. Uh, I am not. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just I get a lot of um, Cherokee uh, cultural questions. You know, pretty much, I mean, what you would imagine that people don't know about um, who we are, um, and they're all very respectful, usually, and everything. But oh, um, so, so your husband provided the. He was a great technical advisor. Yes, for you. <laughs> he was. I would get on him I, because I would ask him a, a short question, and he would give me a very long answer. And I, that's not what I needed to know. I just need to know: is this possible here? But. Well, we work with history faculty. That would ne- <laughs> that would never happen with history faculty. Uh, fascinating. fascinating. But was there any historical? Um, fact that you discovered that you weren't aware of as it relates to your your work on on this mm-hmm. piece. Yeah, I mean, the story itself came about because you know I grew up in Western North Carolina in Cherokee, um, so today is about an hour from the Grove Park, um, and it wasn't until the mo- when the movie Monuments Men came out, mm-hmm. um, there was an article in the Asheville Citizen Times that talked about Asheville's role during World War II. And I kind of known about the Biltmore House, which uh, safeguarded some works of art. Um, but in that same article, they talked about the Grove Park holding um, prisoners of war. And I didn't know that history. And, you know, I'm married to a historian. We have lots of local historian friends. Mm. Um, so that in itself, that big piece, um, was new to me and mm-hmm. really kind of led me into writing the novel. Um, but since then, a really cool thing that has happened with the book is that people will, will give you information that you, you didn't know. Um, so I had done an, uh, a Zoom um, event with a group from Asheville, like a book group from Asheville. And afterward, um, I got an email from a gentleman who's a historian in Asheville, and um, for the listeners, in the book, there's a monkey. <laughs> the monkey's name is Edgar, um, and he plays uh, prominently in the book. Well, the, the historian who contacted me said, I just wanted to let you know that during this time period, there was a shopkeeper in downtown Asheville that had a monkey as a pet. And, yeah, and wow. children would go and play with the monkey. But then they would go up to the Grove Park and climb on the fencing 
that they had put up to keep the prisoners in, and they would mock the prisoners by acting like monkeys. Wow. Yeah, and I just was like floored by that, um, by the connection, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but I also didn't know that piece of history. So it, little things like that have been been strange. Yeah. Wow, wow, that's incredible. So the whole, you know, not to not talk about the other writing, but let's talk about the novel just a bit more. Through that whole experience, what did you learn about yourself or your process when you went through that? Oh, I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I learned, well, I think one of the biggest things I learned um, was, one, that structure is important to me to get the writing done. Like, I like an outline, and I like to know where I'm going. But more importantly... I learned to trust that the character development will take me in the plot directions I need to go, which was unexpected. Um, there's a character in the book, um, a, a Bud in the book, who, when I looked at him early on, was a very flat character. He was serving uh, the purpose of just kind of um, getting County to move on. Um, and I had to ask myself, why is he so flat? Like, why is he doing what he's doing uh, why you know you wrote him too flat, and when I started questioning his motives as a character, it completely shifted uh, the plot and and the resolution of the novel. Wow. And so now I trust my characters to to lead me where I need to go. Um, when I ask them more questions, I was up at midnight asking a character <laughs> question last night, actually, um, but it works. Like if you really think about these characters as human beings the more depth they have, the more depth the plot will have. And you have to be patient in that, I think. That's fascinating. I mean, that process of speaking to your characters, mm-hmm. interviewing your characters, asking them questions, having a dialogue with them. Yeah. Well, I think that's great advice to young writers, too. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely, so. Absolutely, to people coming up on that. So who are, who do you love? Let's name drop a few. What, oh, what writers do you love? Who, I always who, get nervous. Or maybe who's on your bedside table somebody. now? Yeah. Well... <laughs> Quite literally on my bedside table right now uh, is Ron Rash because he has his new book coming out and I'll be going to his event tomorrow in Silva. Gardner Webb alum. Go- yeah, and I didn't even I didn't even say that because he was a Gardner Webb alum. But yes, well, nice but, connection. But thank you for that because that <laughs> yeah. was right on time. Then I should throw out Wiley Cash next, yeah, probably. Okay, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but a lot of those Appalachian writers I love, um, and, and Charles Frazier and Barbara Kingsolver. Um, Silas House, who was my editor uh, on the book. Um, in terms of native writers, um, Louise Erdrich is my hero. Like, I'd fall over if she walked in the room. Um, I do, there are a lot of great new, new native writers out there, or their work mm-hmm. is new, that I'm excited about. Um, Andrea L. Rogers and Stephen Graham Jones. and I'm that's a good. That's a good list. Yeah, I can just keep going. <laughs> and to all my writer friends who I didn't name, it's just because I was on the spot. <laughs> so, so many writers, so little time. <laughs> As you think about short form versus long form, how is your process different from a writing standpoint? Yeah, so I don't. I really struggle with fiction short form. Okay. So I don't write short story. I mean, I won't say I won't ever write short story, but that I really struggle with it. And I, well, there's probably some psychological reason for that. I don't know, um, but I like to write a lot of creative nonfiction, um, and you know, when I approach creative nonfiction, I still am 
in some ways outlining um, the points I want to get to, but I the difference is that with a novel, I know I have several scenes to get there, and I really try to focus on one scene in creative nonfiction um, that I'll introduce um, and then kind of come back to at the end. So I think it's really about like scene work for me. Yeah. Uh, novel is several scenes I'm thinking about. Gotcha. A couple of uh, last questions from my standpoint. What do you think makes a great writer for you? I think uh, what makes a great writer is someone who sees the humanity in everybody in their in their real life because that translates to the page. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can read somebody's work and, and think, I don't want to know this person, <laughs> you know, um, because they don't treat all their characters with humanity and respect. Um and so somebody who, who does that and then also somebody who understands the complexity of the world that they're describing, yeah. um, I think is really important. But what if somebody <laughs> wanted to find out more about your work and follow you? What's the, the sure. best way they can do that? So I have a website. Um, it's really easy to find me because I am the only Annette Sanuk clap saddle in the entire world. <laughs> um, so my website is asanukclapsaddle.com. And I'm on all social media platforms. I'm pretty open about all of that. So it's pretty easy to find me. <laughs> we really appreciate your time today. This has been marvelous. Enjoyed uh, chatting with you, learning more about you as well. And thank you for the time that you have spent, because I know you're off to another uh, thing <laughs> here, but that you spend with our students, because oh, yeah. such a great advantage for them to be able to, to meet someone like you, uh, ask them questions, listen to your insights about your work and how you approach it. Uh, thank you, thank you for being here for them, because they're yeah. the most important thing for us. My pleasure. I, you know, from my days of teaching high school. I love talking to, to students. So thank Absolutely. you. Thanks again to Annette Sanuk Clapsaddle for joining us right here on Web Chat, episode 14 at Garden Web University. Remember, you can find and subscribe to official Garden Web podcasts just like these on all of your favorite platforms. And you can also follow Garden Web news and events online at gardener-web.edu forward slash news. For Web Chat and for Richard McDevitt, I'm Noel T. Manning II. Thanks for joining us. Yeah.